Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 24, The Matters vs. Return of Daimajin. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Nathan Marchand, the curator of the Film Vault here on Monster Island. And returning today for the second entry in the Daimajin trilogy and their dogs, I might add. They brought the dogs back too, because I know you love the cute dogs, people is my friends, Joe and Joy Matter. Hello, world. Hello, kaiju lovers. That was a good one, Joe. <laughs> I like that. Yes, Teddy Kong and Bitzilla are back. <laughs> and uh, hopefully they'll be a, a little less distracting this time around. No offense to you guys or the dogs, that was one of the more difficult broadcasts that we've had here on the island, and I had to clean it up a little bit, putting it out for the, the podcast version. Well, we also learned a really valuable lesson, and that is not starting the movie and such things so late on the island, because, you know, that makes the next day really fun. Yeah, I've learned that as well. The, sometimes I have to keep very... Very strange hours here on Monster Island. I, I'm kind of blaming the board on that one. I mean, they've already mandated these bizarre uniform choices, and I'm starting to think I may want to file a complaint. You know, Jimmy doesn't think that's a great idea. Oh, you're starting to like these uniforms now? Remember that joke on Red versus Blue, Joe? How did that go? It's not pink, it's lightish red. Oh, that reminds me of another one, intrepid producer. That's what Jimmy kept saying. You should really preference that joke with what it came before it is like. It doesn't seem physically possible. That's what Jimmy kept saying. Wow, that is what he said, according to him. Oh, well. Before we get started, I do want to ask, how did you guys get here this time? We made the mistake of taking the express route which involved jumping out of a plane, train, and something else. Really? Jimmy didn't have anything to do with the something else, did he? Very possible. Which, speaking of which, Jimmy, I am not impressed. Yeah, next time you can clean up the vomit from the dogs having to jump out the plane. That was not fun. The dogs parachuted out of the plane? Well, I didn't know that was the plan until it was too late. Yeah, we didn't get their motion sickness pills in time. Wow, I feel very educated right now. I didn't know that there were motion sickness pills for dogs. The mountain of things you would never know unless you have a dog. Yeah, it's actually really just children's Dramamine, but it works on dogs. Well, double duty, huh? Double the business? It's actually cheaper than the vet version of it by a lot. I know that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're actually talking about. But, yeah, that was really fun trying to get the dogs to go out of a plane. I don't know. Maybe we could use some of it for the kaiju. Or Although, just like I said in the previous episode, I don't think there's enough tranquilizer in the world for one of the kaiju here. There's probably not enough motion sickness pills in the world for one of them either. Yeah, I totally lost my train of thought uh, with that. So it was derailed, like with our friends Nick and Tim? <laughs> yes, definitely derailed. 
but not by Nick and Tim this time. Yes. But anyway, as I've already kind of alluded to, this is part two of what I'm calling the Daimajin days. You guys came back so we can do the second entry in this trilogy. I can't wait to show it to you guys. You had a good time with the last one. I think you'll have maybe not as good a time with this one, but I think you'll still get some enjoyment out of it nonetheless. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait. And apparently Teddy's really excited about it too. If Teddy Kong keeps this up, he's going to become the most popular feature on the show. Well, he is available for travel. Yeah, apparently he's good on airplanes. I really need to work on this because if I keep screwing up like this, I have a feeling the Futurians are going to come back after me from the 23rd century and take back their editing technology. All of that to say, I forgot to mention, the toku topic for this episode is Shinto, Shinto Shrines, and Tori Gates. Thank you. Back to the episode. But before we get to that, as Jimmy reminds me every day at work, I am contractually obligated to read his entertaining info dump. But through the magic of podcasting, while that plays, we will have watched the movie. So without any further ado, off to the screening room we go. Huzzah! Yay. Daimajin is a wrathful but just Kami living in a huge stone statue on an island in the middle of Lake Yakimono. He is worshipped by the peoples of Chigusa and Nagoshi and besieged by Sayuri. He seems to have command over water and performs miracles that help the protagonist, such as sinking a Mikashiba boat, until finally responding to Sayuri's pleas. Juro Chigusa is the kind and heroic lord who eludes the Mikashiba during their attack. He hides from the usurpers and later fails to capture Danjo and reclaim his lordship. His pious and submissive fiancée, Lady Sayuri Nagoshi, besieges Daimajin to save her people and the Chigusa from the Mikashiba. Dodohei, a loyal and skilled soldier, protects Sayuri and often advises her on what to do. Her stalwart and brave brother, Katsushige Nagoshi, is captured during the Mikashiba attack and held hostage in exchange for Juro before nearly being executed. Danjo Mikashiba is the greedy and arrogant lord from a neighboring nation that seeks to conquer the Nagoshi and Chigusa for their abundant resources. While the human plot is at first separate from the kaiju plot, it is unified with the kaiju plot once Daimajin is introduced. Not only is his presence felt throughout, he intervenes indirectly by protecting Sayuri and Dodohei from a cave-in, among other miracles, until finally attacking the usurpers in the climax. Danjo is the problem, but treats Daimajin like he is the problem. Mikashiba soldiers attempt to explode the Daimajin statue with an obscene amount of gunpowder, launching the head into the water, which roils. Juro and his aide infiltrate the castle to capture Danjo and use him to bargain for Katsushige, but the villain escapes and his soldiers force the protagonist to retreat. Later, thanks to a distraction from a boy throwing a rock, Katsushige is saved from execution. However, most of the protagonists are captured and a few killed by Mikashiba soldiers on Daimajin's island. The problem is solved when Sayuri prays to Daimajin while hanging from a cross as fire licks at her feet. Her god rises from a lagoon on the island, frightening soldiers. He parts the lake and comes ashore, slaughtering Mikashiba soldiers and rescuing Sayuri from the flames. Finally, he kills Danjo in an ironic fashion by setting his boat on fire. 
The script by returning screenwriter Tetsuro Yoshida is more complex than the previous film, what with its greater politics and larger cast, which makes it less compelling overall. While the film had a new director, Akenji Misumi, the special effects were once again supervised by Yoshiyuki Kuroda. Most of the same techniques used in the first film, suitmation, animation, miniatures, and back projection, among others, are used to equally effective extents here. However, it outdoes the first when Daimajin parts the waters of the lake in a brief but spectacular sequence inspired by the Ten Commandments. Shikara Hashimoto plays the titular character again, this time showing a bit more expression in his performance. Overall, it could be argued that this has the best effects of the trilogy. This is a dark film, though not quite as dark as the first, and takes itself quite seriously. With its gods and living statues, this is a fantasy film. This isn't an experimental film given that it is essentially a rehash of the first Daimajin. In which case, Return of Daimajin reinforces the style of the first of the trilogy by using essentially the same plot, character types, and monster. However, it does put a slightly different spin on Dime Machine's characterization and the story's themes. The film was made quickly to capitalize on the success of the first. To that end, it was meant to entertain both a general adult audience and fans of the kaiju and chambara genres. Like the first film, it was made for around 100 million yen, and while box office figures are unavailable, it grossed roughly the same amount as the first, which paved the way for one more sequel later in the year. It was dubbed and released in the United States under the title Return of Giant Majin by American International Television, although viewings were even rarer than with the first film. There are several forces at play. The Mikashibas seek to conquer the prosperous Chigusa and Nagoshi clans for the resources of their nations. The protagonist's faith clashes with the antagonist's disbelief for much of the film. Later, this evolves into arrogance as Danjo proclaims he is stronger than the Kami. Several miracles occur, which are attributed to Daimajin. The supernatural frequently asserts itself. Daimajin's wrath is poured out on the Mikashiba, who fruitlessly fight back. The themes are quite similar to those of the first film. Evil is justly punished. The Mikashiba's defiance brings the wrath of Daimajin upon them. While the villains are at first disbelieving of Daimajin, they shift to arrogant defiance after witnessing several miraculous events which clearly stems from fear. The rightful rulers are restored to their thrones. Faith is rewarded. The film ends with Daimajin playing a gong in the lake, which the characters take as a prayer for peace and a sign that he will protect their village forever. All right, kaiju lovers. With that, it's time for some Toku Talk. With... That completed, let's dive into this. So, let me ask you guys, as the guests here, what did you think of this one? I like the first one a lot better than this one. This one seemed to be rushed. The character Daimogen is not near as interesting, and the villain is really weak. Yeah, actually, I'm not all that impressed with Danjo, I think is his name. Samanosuke... I hope I said that name right. Uh, shut up, Jimmy. Keep your finger off that button. Correct me later. He's not as uh, good as Samanosuke. I also think the weakness in the villain is what makes him a villain is honestly trying to survive, which I'm like, well, then are they really villains? I mean, what he ends up doing is being a villain, 
But at the same time, he's trying to survive. That is really interesting. I was thinking about that. The argument could be made that perhaps, perhaps, he has a little bit more depth to him because he has an understandable motivation, even a sympathetic one, but he's also a less effective villain than Samanosuke. Well, and I feel like they didn't give any depth to that character, and that makes him not easy to hate. Like, the other villain, you're like, yeah, that's a bad guy. This person, you're like, you're just stupid. (laughs) The reason why Samanosuke was a much better villain is he wasn't already a lord. It was morally reprehensible to kill your lord and become one versus, oh, this is another neighboring lord that just wants territory. Yeah, which was a big part of what we discussed in the Toku topic segment in the previous episode, because that was a common occurrence at the time, and it wasn't necessarily considered honorable, (laughs) to say the least. I will also say the plot was weaker in the sense of knowing who the characters are and being emotionally invested in them. That was a little bit weaker. And then they would flip from characters and you had no idea what was going on for like the first, I don't know how many minutes. It was very kind of confusing. At least in the other one with the time jump, they did a really good job of connecting the characters from their childhood to their adults by using whatever she had on her belt. This one, it's like... There's no time jump and there's no explanation from the very first five minutes of the movie, except for maybe backstory that they were all trying to leave the village. Yeah, that was really interesting. This plot is actually a little bit more complex, I would say, compared to the other one where the other one was very simple and straightforward, where it was two children of a lord and their father is killed. So now they have to go retake what was taken from their family. Whereas in this one, there's a fair amount of politics kind of thrown in with some history that you have these two villages and these two tribes, two nations is what they were actually saying. There were offshoots of another one and went their own separate ways, but they're all around this lake and they're all using the lake for resources and things like that. But then there was one neighboring country that despite having the lake and everything, they were barren and boxed in by mountains and things like that. So they were not experiencing the prosperity that the other nations were, and they wanted to go conquer them so they could have those resources, which, like I mentioned, theoretically at least, would elicit a little bit of sympathy, but it's also very understandable because a very common thing that people go to war over is resources. And I think the how they tried to play in the villain part of it was instead of being like, we have to do this to survive, they laughed about it. Apparently, Jimmy laughs the same way when he thinks about your sword fighting skills. Well, Jimmy, let's just say um, I'm going to repeat what the Lord said before he died in this film. Fighting doesn't solve anything, but just keep going and see what happens. I'm telling you, man, you don't. You just don't. Yeah, and that's the sort of thinking that will get your keister kicked. There's a reason why my husband hasn't even bothered responding to you, because he knows that I can handle myself, but just keep trying. Okay, before this turns into an argument, let's continue on. I am more than okay with that. Yes. So we were on the subject of Donjo, Danjo, however, it sounds like banjo. Danjo rhymes with banjo. (laughs) (laughs) anyway so we were talking about this guy 
there, I don't think there's a whole lot more to say about him other than he's a less interesting villain here than Samanosuke. But I gotta tell you, and I mentioned this a little bit while we were watching the movie, his death might be my favorite villain kill in the entire trilogy. I have to agree with you. And part of it is there's a lot of like, okay, which I know we're going to get into later, but there's part of the, um, oh, what's it called? The thing that ends up looking like a cross. Tory Gate. The Tory Gate. Thank you. Part of the Tory Gate looks like a cross and they keep coming back to it after it's been destroyed. And I'm like, okay, so there has to be something that has to do with something later on. And they do a really good job of not making it obvious how something will tie in from the past point into the death. I thought that was really fascinating. It wasn't just the villain that was uninteresting. It was Daimajin himself wasn't near as interesting as he was in the first film. Because Daimajin is supposed to be a large evil spirit by the definition of the word. And you can make the argument that he was amoral in the first one. This one, he's definitely more like a god figure. And it... Not on the bad side, but on the good side. Do you mean God Big G or God Little G? God Little G. Because I was just wondering, because once again, with the subtitles, they go back and forth even more so in this one than they do in the first film on what words that they choose to use to translate Kami, which is the word that they are using in reference to Daimajin. Yeah, and between that and the political parts of the plot that make it actually more convoluted and harder to understand, it just detracts from the movie, where the straightforward plot of the first one makes it more enjoyable for me. I would agree with you there. The funny thing is, with the fact that this plot is a little bit more complex than the first film is weirdly if I think a product of the fact that I would not be surprised if this script was written hastily it was written very quickly because this sequel came out within just a few months of (gasps) hi Teddy of the first film so I feel like this script probably could have stood to have another draft or two of it to polish things up and smooth some things out make it a little bit easier to understand or at the very least, make things clearer, which is kind of funny that you know a hastily made script is uh, complicated. On the bright side, there was no line about how you're not rough, you're smooth, unlike sand. <laughs> I just have to say that. <laughs> you know, that's the one positive note. Wow. For once, Jimmy agrees with you. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> He is an avowed prequel hater, let me tell you. We established this actually pretty early on when you came the first time. Maybe complex is the wrong word for the script. More convoluted. Perhaps. It reminds me of what should be on Mystery Science Theater, as far as the the script itself. How? How? But it does make up for the fact with some pretty spectacular special effects. Oh, yeah. I am of the opinion that the first film has the best story. This one has the best special effects out of all of them. Let's get into that a little bit here. Do you have a favorite special effects moment in this? Unfortunately, we don't have the the really pretty waterfall to look at this time. This time, Daimajin's on an island in the middle of a lake, which presents a different dynamic this time around. Honestly, it could be that I'm just a fan of water, but when he parts the lake, to me, that 
was really well done for that time, especially because, okay, there are parts of it you're like, okay, yeah, I could tell that's fake. But there were other parts you're like, wow, like this is like crazy cool. I really thought that was cool. And then the other one would probably have been the fire on the water. Yeah, I would also agree with that order. It's obvious that the director of the film saw the Ten Commandments like the week before. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is very much a Ten Commandments moment. And maybe this is a little bit of a hot take, but I think that water parting scene looks just as good as the sequence from the Ten Commandments. Now, it benefits from the fact that it doesn't go on for nearly as long as it does in the Ten Commandments. So I think that gave them an opportunity to really focus in on making that much shorter sequence look really nice. It's been way too long since I've seen Ten Commandments to make a comment on that. But I will say I really enjoyed that. Probably the other thing I really enjoyed, again, is the facial expressions and the face swipe, which was still just as incredible as last time. I actually like it a little bit more starting with this film because Daimajin does it with both hands this time as opposed to just one. I also think it's kind of cool, and you'll see this again in part three, spoiler warning, because he does the same thing here where he brings both hands up and then he slowly brings the arms down to his sides. And the reason I think that's really cool is they clearly built a second suit just for that shot because he goes back to stone and I am more than certain, maybe I'll find out otherwise after today's broadcast, looking at you, Jimmy, but I'm pretty sure that was another suit and not some sort of prop that they had built just to, as the arms come to a rest at his sides. But I agree with you. I do think that the those are probably the two best sequences in this. I'm also, you thought I was a little nuts, Joe, when I brought this up. But the the part where all of the samurai are throwing giant grappling hooks on him as he's walking between two buildings. And I, I looked at just like, I'm getting a little bit of an Attack on Titan vibe here. And I'm not quite sure why. Well, it's the grappling hooks. And on something larger than themselves that's obviously a monster out to kill them. Thankfully, he's not out to eat them. The fact that doing that just ensures the destruction of whatever building they attached him to is kind of funny. Him and his rage face there. <laughs> rage face. That's a that's a good way to put it. Rage face. I don't know. I mean, you know, I've, as I mentioned before, Daimajin is here on the island. He's just been a stone statue for I don't know how many years. He's just hanging out in the Sarazawa Memorial Park. But you know, I don't know if walking up to the statue and calling him Rage Face is necessarily going to go over well. Who knows? The scientists here still can't figure out why he's not moving. They can't even figure out how or why he can transform. Well, you know, when you talk about Rage Face in the film when they try to, to blow him up, because, you know, that worked so well the first time. <laughs> yeah, it, with uh, as... Jason Barr put in his book, The Kaiju Film, with an obscene amount of gunpowder. It should have actually blown up the village both times. But, you know, I mean, okay, well, granted, the first time it blew it up so high that one of the pieces ended up on the shore of the country. (laughs) (laughs) And then the kid is all like, hey, look, a souvenir. It's from our God. That's what you want to (laughs) hear. 
But going back to when they try and blow him up the second time with even more gunpowder and such, and they see him, I really swear that he looked more angry than he did the first time, if that was possible. (laughs) Really, guys? Seriously? Gunpowder again? (laughs) Yeah, that is exactly what that face said. I actually, this had a different director than the first one. Same screenwriter, but... I, I feel like they actually did give Daimajin, even though we're saying that Daimajin's less interesting in this film, I think they allowed the actor in that suit to have a little bit more range of emotion, even though it's still within kind of a limited palette of emotions. But you saw more expression. They did more close-ups of his face so that you could see him react a little bit more. And Time Machine always seems to have this look on his face that says... Really? Really? (laughs) Yeah, his emotions range from anger to rage face. (laughs) Joy, you brought up the uh, the fireball on the water scene as one of your favorite special effects moments. There's more that actually can be said about that. Like I said, it's my favorite villain kill of the entire trilogy. It's in large part because we kind of hinted at it. It's drenched in irony because once again we have crucifixion come back just like in the first one because one of the themes of this episode is going to be this is a rehash of the first movie but much like with the gunpowder the obscene amount of gunpowder crucifixion for poor sayuri that's too good for her burning her at the stake that's also too good for her No, you know what this needs? A crucifixion and a burning at the stake. Oh, now we're cooking with gas. Pardon the pun. Shut up, Jimmy. (laughs) Now we're cooking with hay. It was rice, which you had to correct me on. Repeatedly. (laughs) Whoops. That's okay. So, Danjo rhymes with banjo is (laughs) running from Daimajin. He gets on a boat to get away. And Daimajin wades out into the water a little bit because that's also kind of Daimajin's thing in this one. In the previous movie, he had command over the elements. He could summon storms and wind and things like that. And he does, to an extent, he does some of that here, including actually one of my favorite shots in the whole movie when he has like the power of glare. He just glares at it, at Danjo and he's like, Arr! and he drops his sword and runs away. It was uh, a little terrifying to say the least, but he does the same thing here. He just kind of glares at him and the boat stops and then this starts rocking around and then he makes the fireball float across the water. It was almost like he, you know, like a ground fireball in a King of Fighters game. You just, you know, it just goes, skims across the water and then lights the thing on fire. He doesn't think what it's just what I think most people would do, which is just jump off the boat into the water. But maybe he didn't think he could jump over the flames. I don't know. But he tries to climb the mast. And trying to climb the mast, he falls over. He gets tangled in all the ropes and everything in a very conspicuously crucifixion-like manner. And then the flames eventually come up. And the last shot we see of him is the boat on fire, the mast on fire. It looks like a burning cross. And the it starts sinking into the water. My thought originally was, he didn't start the fire. It's been burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. Which the other song that came into my head was Burn, Baby, Burn. Yeah, there'll be a song theme for every single episode. You're welcome. 
You can't see me shaking my head in shame. You married me. You knew that my family's musical. And I firmly believe I live in a musical. Yeah, that was one of the drawbacks, but <laughs> I take with the good and the bad. Really, Jimmy? Really? He's shaking his head in shame for you, too. You're just jealous because you can't sing. I can sing really well for the children, no less. Wow, Jimmy. Now you're upset with Joe for interrupting you? You couldn't hit the button fast enough to beat Joe? Or is that Kermit? I don't know anymore. Well, we do share the same body for now until Disney's lawyers find out. (laughs) So one thing I found really interesting contrasting this with the first movie is how the statue comes to life. Um, I mean, it's totally destroyed. And you're like, okay, well, where are they going to go now? (laughs) It's literally destroyed. Two things. One is that the main villain said, see, I'm better than your God. I actually would. I'm stronger than your God. I'm sorry. That's what the statement was. Then the parallel goes into her willingness to sacrifice herself for her people and for not just her village, but the other villages, as well as the tears part of it that goes into it as well. Instead of her sacrificing herself to stop him, it was her willingness to die if only he saved her people. Like, I actually wrote that down because I was like, wow, that's really significant because this time it was take my life in exchange for theirs as in to save them, not to stop destroying them. Yeah, even though I don't think this movie overall is as good as the first, I have to admit that last probably 20 minutes or so, I do think manages to catch back up with the first film. And the way that Sayuri is handled, I think is really interesting, especially when we get to the end and she's tied to the cross because she's the one that's on the cross. And the way that that is shot when she is praying to Daimajin and beseeching him, come save our people. I was, <laughs> I know it seems kind of terrible, but I was kind of leaning over to you guys and saying, you know, like, oh, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And it's kind of, I mean, it's just begging for it. It's begging for it. And I hesitate to call Sayuri a Christ figure, but I think the parallels can be drawn for sure, with the beseechment and her self sa- and her at least attempts at self sacrifice, and then it becomes even more interesting. And I had told you guys this the last time you were here. Dimagine's D and D alignment, shall we say, becomes a little bit grayer as the uh, trilogy progresses, and it it's definitely true here because we have this moment that harkens back to the first movie, but it's handled very differently, where he goes up to Sayuri's cross and he breaks it off and holds it. But instead of just tossing it to the side, like in the first movie, he walks with it a little bit and then he lays it down gently to make sure she's okay. Which, by the way, the effects in that sequence were top notch because they switched between the actor holding a prop and it's a really good looking prop to what is the actress on a life-size prop and a prop Dimagine hand that is lowering it down and they, you know, doing their best to probably keep whatever device they're using to simulate the lowering off camera. It was just the transitions in that whole sequence were great. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely great special effects for the time. And even for today, it would be great special effects. I didn't even think about the fact that they would have had to have both of those special effects because it was so smooth. 
like it didn't feel like it was special effects, which is incredibly talented, especially for that time frame. And I really did love the symmetry of gently putting her down, like protecting her. And again, the contrast of him not, you know, just randomly attacking people. He literally was attacking the quote unquote bad guys. He was much more focused this time around, which is interesting. Let me throw this out to the two of you, though. Do you think the fact that he was more focused with his wrath and his morality, for lack of a better term, was grayer? Does that make him less interesting this time? Uh, It does for me because it turns it from, you know, a Japanese movie almost to a Western movie where, you know, the good guys have the white hat and the bad guy has the black hat. In the first one, he was a wild card. You didn't know who he was going to try and kill. Could be the good guys, could be the bad guys, probably both. That's what made him the interesting character because he was an evil spirit, but he ended up doing good. He was chaotic neutral for D&D in alignment where this is definitely chaotic good. Could it have been because the villagers were behind the wall, per se, of the, like, keeping them back that he never even went after them because he didn't need to and they weren't the ones attacking him? Uh, That could be part of it. They were just out of the way, possibly, but I'm not sure. I did come across this quotation here from Jason Barr in his, as I've mentioned before, his uh, book, The Kaiju Film. He said, Daimajin acts to protect continued belief in Daimajin himself. The relief of his worshipers is only incidental. Do you think that applies to this film? I think it applies less in this film than it did in the first, but definitely the first film, that's exactly what happened. I was thinking that as well when I read that. Now, when he wrote that, that was in the context of Return of Daimajin, but I did think, eh, I think that applies a little bit more to the first film. But I'm not the English professor writing these scholarly books on such things. I'm just a lowly film curator. So another one of those beats from the first movie gets repeated in this one, but they do it a heck of a lot sooner, is we have a bunch of soldiers who show up and they try to destroy the statue. And they try doing it in a very similar manner. Let's get some hammers and some big old spikes and we're going to drive them into the statue to break it apart. And it actually looks like they're succeeding for a few minutes, but... Then, unfortunately, this poor movie repeats one of the mistakes from the first one. And I don't know if I would have noticed if you guys hadn't pointed it out when you were here last and we watched this movie. It it reminds me of, like, in Firefly when Wash is holding the stick, but there's no stick there because they took the prop away. But, yeah, the golf swing and not hitting anything. Like, I've been working on my golf swing. This is a nine iron, not a hammer. And you complain about her singing? I'm just saying. I have corrupted him. <laughs> yeah, it is corruption. <laughs> or is it converting to the better things of life like musicals? Definitely corruption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did notice that as well. And I thought it was kind of stupid because it's not like... Oh, I'm going to pretend I'm hitting it really hard. No, it's like a good foot away from the actual spike. And it really, as Joe says, it really looks like someone's practicing their golf swing. Like, whoosh, whoosh. 
<laughs> I guess the director figured no one is going to notice if he's in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry, though. When it doesn't look like there's appropriate force being applied and you got the sound effects in there, you know, the if I had them, I'd play them right now. You know, I'm like, that doesn't match, dude. I could almost deal with the no force, but the fact that I wasn't, it was visibly not making contact with anything. That's what kills me. Yeah, it's even if you would make it a little bit closer, but this is like pro wrestling level fake no contact. I know what you're talking about with that. Although I will tell you, some of the personnel here on the island are big fans of Japanese pro wrestling. They're a bit better at that. The other part that I found really interesting in that scene that wasn't poorly done, except for the fake rocks, like, ooh, look at me. Like, they come out of the rocks and they're like, wait, you're not hurt? And they're like, oh, well, the god must have protected me, which also plays into the fact that the god's still alive. But... It was like they use a dynamic that's usually totally like, and magically they're safe. Instead of it being like, ooh, magic. It's like, oh, purposefully done. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, the, the miracle of not being damaged as he blows up with a ton of C4. I mean, I mean uh, gunpowder. Gun yeah, gunpowder. <laughs> There's no gunpowder to take down a government building. Yeah, which is one of the interesting dynamics in this, whereas before, Daimajin's presence was felt throughout, but it was mostly through a lot of the mystery surrounding him and the legends surrounding him and the people's beliefs in him, and we still have the people believing in him in this one. But his presence is a little bit more manifest, I would say, in this. Yes, we saw him control the elements, you know, summon storms and things like that in the previous film. But in this one, he's performing miracles, such as when I think it was a Totohe and Sayuri miraculously survive. And I actually appreciate the fact that they actually call attention to that, because normally that would have just been one of those things where the, the filmmakers are saying, give us a gimme. They miraculously survive because the plot demands it. And then we see him perform other miracles to help the characters out. He makes some other bad guys that are chasing them, makes their boat sink while the water is roiling up and things like that. So it's interesting how they chose to keep him present throughout the entire film. Do you think it was more or less effective than the previous one? I think that goes more into the fact that they're making him good rather than neutral. In the previous film, he was sealed by the god of the mountain, and when they broke the statue that was sealing him, and he was trying to get out, you could feel the tremors through the first part of the film. It wasn't until they broke it that he actually came out, and he wasn't a god, so he doesn't have miraculous powers. So he's physically destroying the bad guys, or anyone in his way. Where this one, he's supposed to be god. So you're going to see some more miracles intervening for his followers another note you know we talked last uh, last time about the rebel alliance <laughs> <laughs> the other thing i really found interesting is this time the um that emblem was on the bad guys, was on the bad guys. and um you could say that you know this is another time like years later or years before where you know they forgot that that god was real or whatever. But the interesting thing is, is that not only do they still have the Rebel Alliance insignia, at but least, that... At least something that looks like it. 
Right. But, you know, it's not on the quote unquote good guy side. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. Once again, I am sure that George Lucas saw this movie (laughs) along with all the Kurosawas that he was watching. But while we're talking about it, at least indirectly, I found the villain's attitude towards spiritual beliefs probably the most interesting, subtle difference at the very least between this and the first movie, because this is very much like the first movie. Whereas instead of constantly denouncing the beliefs of the people and saying that they don't believe, you know, essentially saying we are atheists, we don't believe any of this, they say that for a little while, but then their attitude starts to shift, if only slightly. And part of that shift, as you mentioned before, Danjo reigns with Banjo, got to the point where he said, I am stronger than your God, as opposed to saying your God doesn't exist, which is really interesting, I would say. So it's not a disbelief. It's kind of a humanistic in a way, but it's a very literal statement of I am stronger than a God. Yeah, I did find that really interesting. I also found it interesting that in this one, not only could they find the statue very, very easily, but the the lackeys weren't even afraid to destroy it before everyone was like, oh, I don't know, should we really do this? And this time they're all like, it's just a statue. Who cares? Let's just do it. I thought that the carelessness, the lack of any remorse or any fear, it just wasn't there. And yeah, it is interesting to go from atheism to I'm stronger than your God, but the way most religions work, not the Judeo-Christian one where there's one God that controls everything, is it's more of a regional God or a God of the mountain, a God of the river, a God of the waterfall, a God of the lake in this one. So you could sort of believe like, yeah, I could be stronger than that. I have enough manpower to overpower it. It also seems to be weirdly and closely tied to the statue. They really seem to think if they can destroy the statue, the god is powerless, which is interesting. I know we talked in the previous episode when you guys were on that there's some interesting biblical parallels to be drawn in the first Imogene film, and there's plenty to draw in this one as well. But one of the big differences, if you pay attention to Christian theology, is uh, <laughs> the Christian God does not like idols and does not manifest himself in idols. He does it in other ways. <laughs> so that's one of the big things that separates the Christian God from this, and I think is one of the illustrations of the difference between Christianity and Eastern religions. There's closer ties to the object, which is something we'll get into a little bit in the Toku Topic segment, and I'm going to get into even more when you guys come back for the third film. One of the minor characters, but that had a really big role, was the kid. And the fact that at the beginning he wanted to throw a rock. Ryuta. Yeah, Ryuta. (laughs) And he was stopped from throwing the rock, but then they're going to kill the son and he does it and he ends up getting taken. But the courage that that kid had to stand up when all the adults around him were like cowering was really incredible. And I thought that was um, really something like sometimes it takes a little kid to say, no, that this isn't okay. Also, I got to say, if that kid was living a few hundred years later, he'd be on a baseball team in no time. Yeah, the kid does have an arm. Yeah, I mean, he only tossed a rock across a lake to hit a guy on a pier. Headshot, I might add. 
<laughs> so not only can he throw far, he could throw accurately. Yeah, or he just had a really lucky shot, but either way. I think your comment, Joe, when we were watching was uh, <laughs> something about how he uh, was uh, trained by David uh, of David and Goliath fame. Yeah, that was definitely David's understudy for the Goliath fight. <laughs> Except the kid didn't need a sling, just saying. His arm was the sling. What are you talking about? <laughs> I feel like that he needs a t-shirt that says that my arm is a sling. So the only other thing that I found really interesting in this film, which I'm always like, wait, you have a secret passage that people can just follow you in? That does not make sense. <laughs> I love the fact that once they're down far enough in the tunnel at the beginning, that they collapse it with rocks. So that way they can't be followed. And I'm like, finally, someone who uses their brain. <laughs> not only that, but it looks like they prepared for this like that that wasn't a last second thing like they intentionally had rocks there and they had someone set up you know they said in case this ever happens and we go down there pull this rope yeah it does seem like the diamond lord of that castle was a doomsday prepper and maybe he had too many ropes and levers you know like <laughs> the emperor's new groove why do we even have that lever <laughs> very good point <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've covered most of what we had in our notes. I have some little details here that we could go over, but we don't necessarily have to. This is why Jimmy writes his blogs every week, that and because he loves riffing on me. And occasionally the guests, you and I are going to have words about that, my friend. So this is as good a time as any. Okay, well, I think actually I need to get the dogs a chance to walk around and go outside for a moment and make sure that they're okay, if that's okay with you. You mean uh, they have to go see Gamera? Yes, they have to go see Gamera. All right, well, this is as good a time as any to sneak in a little commercial or something. Maybe it'll be for another podcast or something else. I'm not quite sure yet. I'll leave that up to Jimmy. He's in charge of all of those things. Regardless, we'll be right back. I've gotten a lot of comments on how great MIFV sounds, and that's all thanks to Sweetwater Sound. Whether you're a podcaster, musician, or singer, Sweetwater has the gear that will make your inner audiophile squee with delight. They have the best selection from all the best brands. More importantly, their customer service is light years beyond, well, everyone else's. They offer fast and free shipping in the continental US, free tech support, free two-year warranties, and 48-month payment plans. Whatever your audio needs, Sweetwater is your one-stop shop. Visit their website, sweetwater.com, to learn more and find your next favorite audio gear. All right, uh, my apologies, kaiju lovers. Uh, we waited as long as we could. I, we're still waiting for Joy to come back from taking the dogs to see Gamera. Uh, do you have any idea where she is, Joe? Uh, no idea, but we can start the conversation without her for now. Okay, I mean, I guess she wouldn't mind. So, about... So, I seem to have grown some friends with Teddy and Bits this uh, here... They seem to be a winged gremlin. Those are Dorats. When did we have Dorats here on the island at Jimmy? 
Are you kidding me? One of the scientists thought it would be a good idea to bring these weird little winged gremlins from the future back. I am really, really starting to question some of the decisions that are being made in the leadership here on this island. The odd thing is they seem to be like right where I normally take them to go see Gamera. Jimmy, I think you got some splaining to do. Oh, really? You don't appreciate my suspicions? Come on, dude. Just be honest, all right? I knew it! I knew it! You let them out! Why did you let them out? Next time, pick something a little bit more scary. I mean, really? That's, like, ridiculous. But thanks for the new friends! Really, Joe? You have no comments about this? What? You can defend yourself against anything Jimmy can throw at you. Well, I can defend myself against anything you throw at me, but that's besides the point. However, that is still a very good point. Jimmy, try harder next time. Challenge accepted? Really? Jimmy, just let it go before you get yourself in more trouble. No, you're not going to sing the song. And for the last time, Frozen doesn't count as a kaiju movie, you weirdo. <laughs> I don't know, Nate. I found the characters in Frozen to be pretty monstrous. That is a whole other thing, my friend. You never even finished the movie. Yeah, you don't finish bad kaiju movies. That is one of the best zingers I have ever heard on this show. Congratulations. And we'll be here for the rest of the night. <laughs> Much to Jimmy's chagrin, I'm sure. Anyway, do me a favor, Jimmy. Please escort the Dorats out so we can continue with our discussion. Thank you. Shoot, fellas. Come on. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Look like dorks anyway. All right. For today's Toku topic, I thought it would be appropriate since we've been talking a lot about the spiritual themes of both this film and the previous film, it would be good to talk about Shintoism and also the Shinto shrines and Tori gates. We talked a bit about the Tori gate in this one. So not only did I do some research into this, I also made sure to consult with Imatsu-san, who is the resident Shinto priest here on Monster Island, because we do have some Shinto practitioners here on the island, as well as some Buddhists and obviously some Christians as well with Reverend Mifune. Interestingly, they share the same space for all of this stuff. It's uh, interesting, to say the least, especially on a Sunday morning. So the Tory gates, they're not referring to uh, British loyalists during the Revolutionary War, are they? Good one, Joe, but no. <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit later. As I was doing the research, even though some of the sources I looked at operated a little bit differently than this, what I thought I would do is actually talk about some of the key facets of Shintoism and then talk about the Shinto shrines, and then about the Tori Gates. So the Tori Gates will come last, because I think you need to understand Shintoism to understand the shrines, and then when you understand the shrines, you can understand the Tori Gates. This is by no means a comprehensive explication, probably not the right word, but of Shintoism, because 
I, there's no way I think you could encapsulate an entire religion in just you know, 30, 45 minutes. It's a very complicated thing. And like I've said, I'm kind of splitting this up between this episode and the next episode because I'll be talking about some other facets of it that we won't get into as much detail here. But even though we've talked about a lot of the biggical and Christian parallels that can be drawn in the Daimajin trilogy, these are Japanese films and they are rooted in Japanese culture and religion because that's actually what Shintoism is. It's the indigenous religion of Japan. Just out of curiosity, what do the two of you know about Shintoism? Uh, I don't know that much. I know that basically anything could be a god, like the spirit of the river, the spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the lake. And that's what I assume the shrines are set up to embody. I don't know much more than what Joe mentioned. I mean, to me, I can't equate it to... The biblical Egyptians, where they had a river god, they had a moon, you know, a harvest god or moon god or whatever, that type of thing. I honestly know very little bit about that part of it. That is certainly a part of it. If you guys get a chance, listen to episode 13. But that's on the three treasures. And I spent a lot of time talking about Japanese mythology. And that's where you would hear a lot about the pantheon of gods. Amaterasu and all of them because they are part of Shintoism, but they're not the only part of it. And that pantheon is the closest thing to what we as Westerners would understand as gods because it's a, it's a little bit different in Shintoism. But one thing that makes Shintoism a lot different from other religions is there isn't really a founder for Shintoism, which I've, thought was kind of interesting. You know, Buddhism has Buddha. Christianity has Jesus Christ. Islam has Muhammad. But there's nothing like that in Shintoism. And it doesn't have sacred scriptures or texts either. And weirdly enough, on a collective level, according to one of the sources I looked at, on a collective level, Shinto is a term that denotes all faiths. But on a personal level, it implies faith in a deity or kami, as we've been talking a lot about the, the last couple of episodes. It incorporates the spiritual mind of the kami through worship and communion. That is a big part of it. Anyone want to take a guess what the, the word Shinto means? Maybe nature? Actually, no. It means way of the gods. It comes from a couple of Chinese words, Shen Dao. And the first time the word was ever used was in the Nihon Shoki, which is a collection of ancient Japanese myths and stories. Again, something I talked about in episode 13. It means the Chronicles of Japan, and that dates back to the 8th century. And it was used to differentiate it from Buddhism, because Buddhism found its way into Japan a couple hundred years before this. And also to differentiate it from Confucianism and Taoism, all of which came from their neighbors. So in Japanese, the characters Shin and To, Shin means kami and To means do, meaning a philosophical path or study, hence way of the gods. The kami are very central to Shintoism, and I'll talk about them a little bit here, but I'm going to save a more in-depth discussion of the kami for the next time that you guys come for the final entry in the Daimajin trilogy. But to put it succinctly right now, they are beings that inhabit or represent different things, as you had talked about, Joe. 
everything has one. Humans can become one. One of the sources I looked at was a guy named David Chart, who's actually a British fella, but he lives in Japan and has done extensive research on all of this. And one of the videos I looked at where he was being interviewed and was showing the interviewer around a shrine, he actually said that translating kami as God is not really the best translation, or even spirit, because it doesn't really describe what the kami are supposed to be. It's a little bit more complicated than that, which is why he personally just leaves it untranslated as kami. They could be seen as manifestations of a singular being or force. That's kind of how he put it. So what's interesting about Shinto is that it's more about what you do than what you believe. It's not really an identity. It's why etiquette is actually really important in Shinto, particularly the way Shinto is practiced. Because of that, at least in modern shrines for Shinto, priests will accept anyone of any religion who wants to come and pay respects to the kami. Although I think, and David Chart talks about this as well as, uh, you know, devout Christians like ourselves probably wouldn't do that necessarily because that goes against our beliefs. And Joe, you and I discussed this a little bit the last time you were here. When Shintoism, there is no faith in an absolute God who's the creator of the universe. One of the best ways to describe it comes from a scholar named Norinaga Motori, who was a scholar in the 18th century, and he wrote, Whatever seems strikingly impressive possessed the quality of excellence and virtue and inspired a feeling of awe was called kami. So again, the mighty river, <laughs> you know, the mountain. Some of the sources I looked at actually said that Mount Fuji to a lot of Shintoists is a kami because it's the biggest mountain in Japan. Yeah, it's what we as Christians see as God's creation and what we see God's hand in ends up being kami to them. So seeing the beauty of the mountain, seeing the beauty of the river, of the lake, whatever natural phenomenon that seems striking to them. Yeah, the quality of excellence, you know, can talk about things like enormous power, enormous influence that can bring good fortune and happiness to man, but can also interestingly bring misfortune and evil. They don't necessarily make a distinction. It's not like in Christian theology where, and maybe this isn't the best example, but it's the one that comes to mind. You have angels and demons who are polar opposites from each other. One is good, one is evil, and they are related to each other, but they are considered separate beings. Yeah, there is no necessarily morality scale when it comes to Shinto. And if you're trying to convert a Japanese person to Christianity, one of the major struggles is um, getting them to believe in one absolute that's over them all that is good and uh, sort of controls all the kami that they see in, sh in shrines. Which was something that we went into when we were talking about the, the first missionary to Japan and some of the difficulties they had just in translating the name of God and how pretty much everything they did had some sort of Buddhist connotation or something like that. It was very difficult to communicate the concept. Yeah, the problem with Conveying the idea is that one word in speech could mean many different things. The kanji look different, but the word sounds the same. Yeah, the word sounds exactly the same for the word for paper, for the word for hair, 
word for God or spirit. There's about 12 different meanings for kami. What's interesting is the ancient Japanese people didn't separate the physical from the spiritual, and that factors into this. In Shinto cosmology, the world was created with the, and again, I talk about this in episode 13, was created with the appearance of a single kami who represented the universe, and then the next two appear with a kami of birth and growth, and then a male kami and a female kami appear, and they give birth to all of the different deities and things like that. Then they formed the land of Japan and all that fun stuff. Therefore, Shinto doesn't see a difference or discontinuation between kami, nature, or human beings. It all kind of blends together. I mentioned before that the word Shinto had to be invented to differentiate the indigenous religion from the other religions that came to Japan, particularly Buddhism. Well, what's interesting is starting in the 8th century, Buddha and the Kami started to amalgamate. They were first seen as the protectors of Buddha, the Kami, because Shinto shrines were established in Buddhist temples. So the religious spaces started to overlap. And then also temples were also built on top of Shinto shrines. And then during the Heian period, the Kami were taken to be the manifestations of the Buddhas. And then the Buddhist title, and I talked a little bit about this in reference to Mothra, actually, the Buddhist title of Bodhisattva. That title was conferred onto the Kami. And as the object of worship, Buddha's images or images of the Kami in the fashion of a Buddhist monk, who would be called a, a Sogyo no Shinzo, were installed in the Honden of shrines. That's a, one of the parts of the shrine. And this was interesting. I'm surprised it never came across this before, but apparently the title in the Imperial Palace for the Emperor of Japan is uh, Tenno. And we talked about before, the Emperor, up until the end of World War II, was believed to be a descendant of Amaterasu, the sun goddess. So he was considered a human who became a kami. But at the time, in the Imperial Palace, they did actually revere and worship Buddha, as well as the kami. So that contributed to the fusion of the two of them. And then the term for the fusion of the Kami and Buddha is the Shinobutsu Shugo. I'm throwing a lot of terms at people. I don't expect you all to remember them, although there may be a test at the end. Oh, shut up. I used to be a teacher. But, and this is where we'll have a bit of a point of reference here, Joe. That all changed thanks to the Meiji Restoration. Because at that point, Shinto was made the state religion. And then what followed was something called the Haibutsu Kishaku, or literally, abolish Buddhism and destroy Shakyamuni. And at that point, all of the pent-up frustration that Japanese people had with Buddhism completely broke out. And then during this period of time, 40,000 Buddhist temples were destroyed. And the reason I say we have a point of reference for this, Joe, is... Rurouni Kenshin. Yes. You know who I'm thinking of specifically? Yeah, the Buddhist monk that Sanosuke encounters. Anji. And he talked about the persecution that the Buddhists suffered at that time during the revolution. Just goes to show that the Rurouni Kenshin did its homework. It may be a little bit ridiculous, but it is steeped in real history. Yeah, that's one of the more historically accurate portrayals of Japan at that time period. We'll just ignore the wacky physics, right? 
yeah, just ignore the shonen anime physics, but the actual history of what was going on, pretty close to reality. All of this to say, though, this is one of the main reasons why many Japanese people don't make a clear distinction between Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines or between Buddha and the Kami. They are both respectful entities who are worshipped by the Japanese people. Admittedly, from what I was seeing in my research, it's a little bit difficult to figure out how many true believers there are in Shinto right now. Some statistics say there are 119 million official followers, but what's interesting is that it said that life events are handled by Shinto, but death and afterlife events are handled by Buddhism. In a sense, you could say that most Japanese people who take part in Shinto rituals also do Buddhist ancestor worship. I find it really interesting that despite the fact that they tried so hard to get Buddhism out of the country, it's still held on in the sense of they have mirrored those two beliefs together and not separated them. And that's doubly ironic because, interestingly, according to David Chart, there are way more Buddhists in Japan than Shintoists, at least in terms of true believers. Only 3% of Japanese, he says, claim to be Shinto, while 36% claim any other religion, although that's mostly Buddhism. We talked about before how there's, at the most, the absolute most, maybe 1% of the population's Christian. And that's still highballing it. Yeah, and the last statistic I heard was for every 1,000 people, 35. So that's less than 1%. It's like 0.03%. Which is interesting because this guy said, you keep in mind, he's a British guy living in Japan. He said the opposite is true in the UK, where 70% claim to be Christian, but only 4 to 5% even go to church. Yeah, it's even interesting in the way that British does their government. It's the ministry of whatever. It was originally a Christian country, and most people have abandoned it. So again, uh, I'm not going to get into all the details of it. This might be a word you may have come across, but uh, a Matsuri. You ever heard that word before? No, no, we haven't. That's actually a festival that's held at Shinto shrines. And I think that's noteworthy because I'm pretty sure in both of the movies that we have watched in your visits here, we've seen, if I'm wrong, please let me know, Japanese listeners. I think we've seen some Matsuris at the beginnings of both of these movies. Yeah, it does seem that way. Well, what's interesting is... A lot of times they're small ones. They only last for about a day, and it's just the local people who will go and attend them. But there are some, they are huge events that go on for over a month, and they have parades and everything. Those are in the big cities. It's a huge deal. We haven't had one on Monster Island for a little while, though. They're still trying to make that work. Yeah, the whole mask mandate doesn't really help, especially when you require it for some of the monsters. That's kind of odd. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me uh, started on that big, fat, weird walrus who uh, was the first kaiju to start wearing one because apparently Mothra can spin masks with her web. It's a little bit bizarre. I guess Mothra is a seamstress. Didn't know this. What tangled webs we weave. Wait, I get a want and Joe got a symbol? Really? Oh, I should have figured it was you controlling it. All right, that's enough, you two. I don't need a fight to break out on the air. 
I'm not trying to start anything. I'm just a guest on your podcast. Fine. I was on Redeemed Otaku recently, and Bex had to intercede like she was everyone's mom because my pseudo-sister clone was hanging out with us for a while, and we got into a little bit of a scuffle. That sounds like an odd family dynamic I don't want to get into. Trust me, you don't. All right, now there's one more thing related to Shinto that I want to talk about. It's in reference to the practice of Shinto. Now, I saw this on a video with David Chart. It's related to the practice of Shinto, but it also goes back to the shrines and how you're supposed to conduct yourself at the shrines. Trust me, I've seen it happen here on the island. And if you guys wanted to go see it in action, once we're done with the broadcast here, you can go see this happen here at the shrine that's here on the island. But it's a practice called Ohari or Misogi. And this involves purifying oneself before entering a shrine. It's actually really interesting to watch. It's a very, very important part of Shinto. And you have to do it before meeting the kami. And interestingly, the priest would prefer you didn't come without doing this. And this is interesting, as I tried looking into this one time, because this is a, it's an interesting cultural touchstone. David Chart likens it a bit to removing your shoes before entering a Japanese home. In that case, is to avoid tracking dirt in from the outside. So in front of Shinto shrines, there are water stations with ladles. People must rinse their hands and their mouths, so they would take a little bit of the water into their hand, put it into their mouth, slosh it around, spit it out. And when you do it, you have to make sure your lips don't touch the ladle before you can even enter the shrine. You have to do all this before you can enter the shrine. David Chart says it's technically more complicated than that, but most Japanese people don't know how to do it, so they just stick with this. And he says this minimum is enough to make the priests happy. I've been referring to the shrines as, well, shrines, but the actual word in Japanese for them is jinja. Yes, I know, it rhymes with ninja. Although I also found out that there are words like Yashiro, Miya, Mori, and Hokora that are also used in reference and as names for the shrines. What's interesting, though, is they weren't originally buildings. Instead, what would happen is a few times a year, you would have a Himorogi or Sakaki or other evergreen tree or a Ika or Iwakura, which would be a natural stone or a boulder that would be erected and that would be considered sacred. And it would be set at the foot of an imposing mountain overlooking a community. Well, does this sound familiar? <laughs> and Or beside a clear stream in a forest. And the kami's presence would be invoked there for the duration of the worship. Along those lines, you had the Engashiki's Register of Divinities, or the Jin Miyocho, probably butchering that. Sorry to my Japanese speakers in the audience. Which would be Divine Trees, which was a little bit of a subject that Bex from Redeemed Otaku and I got into in episode 16. They had stuff like that at several different shrines throughout Japan. And since they were considered taboo spaces that were off-limits, to humans, or you know, apparently in Shinto, humans are called Kensokuchi. They'd be marked off with ropes that are called Shimanawa, and harvesting the trees or the grass in those areas was forbidden. And book three of the Engashiki states that, quote, it shall not be permitted to cut trees or bury dead within the four borders of a shrine, which was their way of saying, this is sacred space. 
You can't do anything like that here. This is the God safe space. (laughs) The thing that I find interesting going back to the movie part of it is how in both movies, they don't just disgrace the shrine. They literally try and destroy it. So when you're thinking about it, like knowing what those people believed, how disrespectful it was and everything they did, it kind of changes how you view not just that they were trying to destroy their God and their hope, but they were totally being irreverent. Irreverent. That word. Irrelevant. Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. I.E. speak good English. (laughs) Um, The gooder words. Definitely. Hey, look, we can't all be as eloquent as you. Well, sure we can. (laughs) Uh, Regardless, I found that really fascinating. So all of that to say, they weren't originally buildings. Actually, now that I think about it, it reminds me a little bit about the, the, you know, the in Christian theology about the church, how a church in the early days of Christianity, a church wasn't a physical building. It was a community of people who gathered to worship God, or in this case, worship Jesus Christ. But while there were buildings constructed at the shrines at Issei and Izumo, shrine buildings didn't appear until around 760 A.D., And I mentioned before that some words that were used for the shrines was stuff like Yoshiro. That actually denotes a temporary structure that would be erected for worship. And then there's a few other words that I found that relate to that. I'll save those for Jimmy's notes so so we don't have to dive too headlong into that. But there's several different words and, and their meanings and how they relate back to all of this stuff. But what's interesting... And I mentioned this to you guys a little bit, actually, tonight before we started watching the movie, was the number of kami in Shinto beliefs has actually increased over the centuries. In the the Register of Divinities that I mentioned, it had 2,861 shrines, but by the year 927, there were 3,132 deities at those shrines. But now, it's kind of crazy. It, that number of kami has ballooned to 8 million, according to David Chart. Although he qualified that by saying is that it's not meant to necessarily be taken literally. It's just the priest's way of saying that there are an innumerable amount of kami in the world. And you can have over 8 million when you make everything that could be awe-inspiring in nature a god. The thing that makes no sense to me is like, okay, well, a person can be all inspiring or they can be the most horrible human being you can think of. So to equate a beautiful mountain and a person and they both are commie, I just, I find it bizarre. It's one of those things that Westerners just don't quite understand, particularly Westerners who, like us, come from a christian background it's a weird concept but i think even people outside of the faith they're they're used to things like the greek pantheons that makes a little bit more sense to us because the greeks wanted their gods to be like them they wanted them to be personified embodied while most other cultures particularly uh, most other cultures in the west over there their gods were different they were inhuman they were unlike people you know you look at the egyptian pantheon and they look like grotesque frightening animals whereas the greeks pictured them more as human beings that you could understand 
And I kind of wonder, I'm, you know, I'm being a armchair amateur anthropologist with this, but I kind of wonder if something like that factors in here as well. But again, going back to one of the things I said at the outset, the Japanese, particularly ancient Japanese, didn't separate the physical and the spiritual. As of 1992, so almost 30 years ago, 97% of shrines were affiliated with the Association of Shinto Shrines in Japan, and the remainder were incorporated as just ordinary corporations, uh, which in Japanese is called Tanritsu Hojin, or as small religious organizations. What's interesting is there are shrines. I thought I found this fascinating. There are actually shri- uh, Shinto shrines that on once you we'll get into the Tori gates a little bit on the other side of the Tori gate, they have playgrounds for the kids. And a lot of Japanese workers will go to Shinto shrines on their breaks to eat lunch or other meals because eating in the sacred space for the kami is not offensive or disrespectful, I should say. Now, these notes that I have come from the video where David Chart is the leading the interviewer through the Shinto shrine. So we've, he's crossed the Tori Gate. We'll talk about Tori Gates here in a little bit. But shrines have a prayer hall that has an offering box and a rope with a bell. Hmm. Now suddenly the bell makes a little bit more sense in Return of Daimajin. <laughs> that big Liberty Bell looking thing. I don't know if that's what this is, but I can't help but wonder now looking at this if that's what it relates to. That would make a lot of sense, especially since we kind of overlooked it. But at the end, they could hear the bell in the lake, and they said that Gami was ringing in the bell to signal peace. Mm. So that brings a lot more significance to that statement than not knowing that history. Very good point, Joy. So people ring the bell, and then they throw their offerings to the Kami into the box. Interestingly, the most popular form of offering is a 5 yen coin which is called a goen and that's because the name in the name for that in Japanese sounds very similar to the word for honorable connection and this is another symbolic act of purification and then this was interesting and in I've actually seen this happen not only here on the island but in a lot of Japanese media after you ring the bell and throw the coin into the box which you can do in any order it doesn't really matter the person will pay respect to the kami by bowing twice clapping twice and then bowing one more time and then when the parishioner walks away after that you're not supposed to turn your back to the kami which i think is interesting so they have to back away from the statue is that what you're saying it's not a statue it's just a shrine i'm sorry the shrine yeah, either back away or kind of walk to the side. When I watched the video, the guy walked to the side. But if you need a more formal prayer, you can go talk to the priest and he will offer the prayer for you for 5,000 yen. And here's something that's interesting. Some shrines actually specialize in certain benefits. For example, there are some shrines that are called Tenjin Jinja and they specialize in academic success. So they're very popular with students, especially around exam time. There's one very famous one that is actually set up next door, or at least very close to the University of Tokyo, which is the most famous university in Japan. You know, I mentioned that you could get more formal prayers made if you needed them to. When you do that, you also receive what's called a 
Omamori, which is an amulet, and that lets you take part of the kami's power with you. And they're priced differently depending on the subject. So, for example, you could get an omamori for safe childbirth or for work or, interestingly, for your pets. So, I guess if you wanted to be a little bit funny, you could go get some omamori for Bitzilla and Teddy Kong. <laughs> and again, you know, I mentioned the statistics about how you know only 36% of people in Japan claim any sort of religion. Well, maybe it's more like 40% because it's 3% Shinto and stuff like that. 70% of Japanese people visit a shrine at least once a year. And that's usually on New Year's because they have a big event that's called a Hatsumode. Japanese parents will take their newborns to a shrine after birth and at ages 7, 5, and 3. And this is an event that's called a Shichigosan, which... If you know how to count in Japanese, that would sound familiar because it's derived from the Japanese words for those numbers, seven, five, and three. The kids get to wear special kimonos and they thank the kami for the fact that they reach that age and then they pray for safe growth. And this is celebrated around November 15th every year. So that gives you an idea of what it's like to go visit a Shinto shrine. So let's talk about the Tori gates. And this was... For me personally, it was kind of the beginning point for me because the Tory Gate that we saw in the film today, as we've already discussed, holds some symbolic value and some weight. And if you've seen any Japanese media at all, which I know everyone here has seen plenty of anime, you'll see Tory Gates show up in there. It's a huge fixture of Japanese culture. So these are the gates that are at the edge of the shrines. And they demark the sacred space. The word Tori was originally derived from the Tarana, which was a freestanding arched ceremonial gateway from India, interestingly, which announced the entrance of a sacred enclosure or a city. These gateways would have influenced also the creation of the Paifang or Chinese gateway, which also has a certain resemblance to Japanese Tori. So there's a lot of cultural overlap there. Most of them were made of wood, and as we saw tonight in the film, because it was very brightly colored, almost all of them are painted red. But there are a few that are black, and there are some that are made of stone, but most of the time they're red. And they mark the transition point when, you, you know, when you're entering the sacred space. This is the point where you transition into there. It's like the threshold from, if you want to put it this way, the human world into the kami world. Probably not the best way to explain it, but you know what I mean. So you've seen what a tori looks like. It has two lintels, an upper lintel, which curves upwards. The upper one is called a kasagi, and the lower one is called a nuki. And then there are the two pillars, which are called hashira in Japanese. And in some cases, they have a smaller pillar at the front and the rear. Those are oriented in a perpendicular line to the lintels. There are a lot of different kinds of Tory gates, and trust me, I found pictures of all the, the many different types. But the two main ones are called the Shinmei Tori, or the right Tori, and the Myojin Tori, or the curved Tori. And remember how I talked about how there, for a while, Buddhism and Shintoism in Japan had amalgamated together? There is some debate, actually, as to whether or not the Buddhists introduced Tori because there are a few Buddhist temples that have a Tori gate, such as the Shitenmoji Temple in Osaka, which is the oldest Buddhist temple in Japan. 
It was erected in 593 under a patron of Japanese Buddhism, Prince Shotoku. And it has a big stone tori, which replaced the wooden one in uh, 1294. And it's still there. However, from what I understand, the the gate-like structures that they have at Buddhist temples are actually called uh, Sanman. In terms of the mythological origin of the Tori Gate, again, this goes back to something I talked about in episode 13. There's a story that goes that uh, Amaterasu, the sun goddess, actually sealed herself away in a cave which plunged the world into darkness. The other gods and goddesses did everything they could to get her to come out of the cavern. It didn't work. And then after all of these attempts, they put on a series of events that finally brought her out. And one of those was they used the sound of birds singing that sat on a wild mistletoe growing just outside the cavern entrance. So now the deities of Japan are thought to reside beyond the tree near where birds sit, resulting in the name Tori. Because Tori is written with the kanji characters for bird and reside. So this is interesting. And I found another video with uh, an American woman who demonstrated this. When you enter a Tori gate, traditionally, you have to bow slightly before entering to show respect to the kami. And David Chart said, it's a good point when you do that to do something like straighten your tie. Also, you're supposed to, and keep this in mind, if you go visit the shrine today, you have to enter on the side and not in the middle because the middle is reserved for the kami and only they are allowed to walk in the center. And then there's what you would call a sacred path that the worshipers take to pay respect to the kami in the sanctuary and the sanctuary is called a sando. And what's interesting is there's a very famous tori. It's a tunnel of tori gates. If you went there, you don't have to bow at every single one in the t- <laughs> in the tunnel. That would you know slow things down drastically. But that's the Fushima Inari Taisha, uh, which is for the Inari deity. So there are several very famous tori gates out there, and a couple of ones that I came across was the the tori at Kinpusen-ji, which is a syncretic temple for both Shinto and Buddhism. And it's in front of the Zao-do Hall in Yoshina, the, in the Nara prefecture. And it has been recognized as an important cultural property in Japan and stands eight meters, so about 25 feet tall. And then there's a vermilion red tori that stands in the water. Again, does this sound familiar? A tori gate in water at Itsukushima Shrine which is in Miyajima, in the Hiroshima prefecture. And it's one of the most famous images of Japan. And this Tori Gate hasn't only been recognized as an important cultural property in Japan, but as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's a big deal. And it's about 16 meters tall, about 52 feet. Because of that size, it's referred to as a Grand Tori. And according to the website I looked at, this... Tori Gate, unfortunately, is under repair right now. But there's one other Tori Gate I wanted to mention to you guys because I think it's it's a very interesting one. And that is the Sano Shrine, which is in Nagasaki. It is a one-legged Tori Gate. Here, I'll show you a picture here really quick. The story behind this one is this Tori Gate is it was just far enough away from the nuclear bomb when it was dropped that it wasn't completely destroyed, but it 
half of it was torn down, but the other half of it is still standing. And because of that, they just left it there. All of that to say, I looked up all of the stuff and I thought this was fascinating, but something that I've seen a lot and we saw it tonight when we watched the film was the Tory gate gets destroyed. And I've seen this in some other Japanese films as well. Happens in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Tori gets destroyed by Ghidorah while he's attacking Japan. And I wanted to know if there was some sort of a significance to that. So I consulted one of my favorite listeners, Kyoe Toshi. So I wanted to know if there was any significance to when a Tori gate is torn down in stuff like in Return of Daimajin. And she told me, generally... If a human is doing it, it represents disrespect for the gods and upsetting the natural order of things and eliminating the border between the normal and the mystical, allowing angry Kami to cause chaos. When a monster or kaiju does it, it represents the fact that they tear asunder the balance between the natural and supernatural and, in effect, walk in both worlds. Wow, that is incredibly poetic and illuminating. It most certainly is. And I think we saw that illustrated here because the Tory gate was destroyed by the obscene amount of (laughs) gunpowder. And then what happens after that? Daimajin is unleashed. Not only is he unleashed, he does crazy things like part the waters in the lake, march up to the mainland, and exacts his wrath upon Danjo rhymes with banjo <laughs> and rescues our heroes. Woohoo! When normally it sounds like he would probably just be limited to his island, but the barrier with the Tory Gate was broken, which makes you wonder if that adds more significance to the fact that one of those fragments that was left standing for the Torigate, one of the pillars, looked weirdly cross-like. It makes you wonder if that's saying something. I'm not entirely sure. Not just that, but it's also really interesting because in the first movie, what caused the statue to awaken was that they broke the seal for the demon or the god underneath. On this one, what woke the statue in what would relate to this was the destruction of that Tory gate. Tory gate. So yes, it was the tears and the cry of, you know, the heroine, but at the same time, it also would have been the fact that they destroyed the Tory gate. That's very observant. I hadn't thought of that. So the seal in this case is what you're saying was the Tory gate. Yes, exactly, which kind of makes sense because where did it come from? It came from in the water, and where was the pieces of the Tory Gate in the water, as well as the statue? Wow. Just wow. Sometimes I have smart stuff to say. (laughs) Really, Jimmy, you're still not impressed? I'm sorry, Joy. That's okay. My worth is not based on what he says. You are a wise woman. (laughs) Yes, I am. And my husband would agree with that. Fortunately, it seems like his uh, long day here on the island is finally getting to him. Yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah, it's it's been a long week before traveling to the island. So I'm like, oh, sleep is calling like a siren. (laughs) Good thing I put you two up in the Monsterland Resort. You'll have a good time. 
Well, if neither one of you have anything to add, I've pretty much cleared through all of my notes on this matter. In which case, I need to get to a very important segment of the podcast before we wrap up, which is the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Travis. Alexander! Michael. Hamilton! Danny. Damana! Eli. Harris! Chris. Cook! Bex from Redeemed. Otaku! Thank you very much for all of your support, guys. And just to let everybody know, if you're a big fans of the show, please support us on Patreon. I'll have a link to the Patreon page in our show notes. By the way, thanks, guys, for joining in on that. It's a lot of fun. That was really fun. Thanks for letting us join in on that part. Especially Kermit. That was great, Joe. Well, I don't get a lot of voice work since Disney took away all my rights. Before we wrap up today, because, you know, it's about that time. (laughs) My next episode, I will have one of my patrons on the show, Michael Hamilton, a.k.a. the Kaiju Groupie. He will be joining me to talk about Dogra the Space Monster, which is a weird hybrid of a heist movie and Lovecraftian kaiju from outer space. At least it's not vampires in space. With Amish people. Oh, yeah, sorry. Amish vampires in space. This is a book that exists, people. I'm not kidding. And it's a bestseller. Doesn't it sound exciting? Of course it does. Not really. Anyway, and then next month, you two will be returning for the final entry in the Daimajin trilogy, which is called Daimajin Strikes Back. Apparently, he is the Empire. I was so thinking that. <laughs> also known as Wrath of Dimagine. <laughs> Going back to the... Uh, <laughs> what? What's so funny, Joy? Revenge of the Sith. Exactly. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> the Wrath of the Demon God. I mean, we talked about that the last time you guys were here. So <laughs> it's right up there. <laughs> so we'll be wrapping things up and uh, hopefully... Hopefully, Jimmy will wise up or, I don't know, one of you will end up dead by the end of the next episode. I don't know at this point. Dead? No. Injured? Very well, possibly, but it wouldn't be me. Ooh. (laughs) Not that I'm encouraging you two to get into a fight, but uh, dang. Fine. Don't buy it. That's your prerogative. I forgot to mention this, but I want to make sure I get this out there because this is the last episode that will be published before the deadline, which is that I want to remind you all that this month marks our first anniversary and I am going to be putting together a special presentation with Danny DeManna. We're going to redo our presentation from Kaiju Conline since we had some technical issues. But as part of that, I am also going to be sharing feedback from all of you, both written and audio. So if you want to record it and be heard on the show, send us those MP3s telling us what your favorite moments from the first year of the show are. It could be the story segments. It could be the film analyses. Doesn't matter. Send those in by September 20th, 2020, if you want to have them read or heard on the show. And now, back to the end of the episode.
Anyway, once again, thank you very much for coming. I'm thinking back to episode two when you two and the dogs, <laughs> well, you didn't have Bitzilla at the time. It was just Teddy Kong. But thinking back to that and, you know, with Tim and Nick here, I was serious when I said that you are among my favorite people and it was tremendous fun having you on for that episode. It's been tremendous fun this episode and your previous one. And I can't say that enough. It was definitely our pleasure. I know Joe's kind of been kind of quiet now. He's kind of fading fast, but uh, we had a lot of fun and we really are grateful for the opportunity and the experience, especially with Teddy Kong and Bitzilla. Yeah. If yawns were audible, this podcast would be filled with them. And with that condenser microphone, I'm surprised they weren't. This episode brought to you by yawns. <laughs> Not to say that it was boring. It's just a long day. You'd be surprised how often that happens in podcasting or in broadcasting in general. Anyway, let's get you guys over to the Monsterland Resort, and I will make sure that Jimmy is practicing social distancing, but for different reasons with you. So, with all of that in mind, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edited by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>